Here's a keen insight from the great southern writer Flannery O'Connor. It's a quote I used back in April, but it's so good I will use it again. Because it leads us into Luke's gospel. O'Connor wrote, It's always been hard to believe. There are some of us who have to pay for our faith every step of the way. It's not hard for everybody to believe. Some of you, either yourself or you know somebody, who's never really struggled with belief. Believing in Christ, believing in the claims of Christianity, for some people... It's, it's never been an issue. There are people who, f- from their earliest remembrance, there's always been a deep confidence and a settled belief. But there are others of us for whom that's not the case. In this room, this morning, we're a mixture. Believers, half-believers, ex-believers would-be believers. Today we're beginning a series of sermons where we're going to walk for the next six months through Luke's gospel. We'll cover the first five chapters and then the, the last several chapters. And, and this morning our focus is on this opening paragraph, this preface, this something of a prologue, verses 1 to 4. Did you notice how it ends? Did you notice what he said at the end of this long and complex sentence? Luke chapter, if you have your Bible, if you have a Bible, turn there. Luke chapter 1, notice verse 4. Here's the author saying, I'm writing this to a guy named Theophilus. We'll talk more about that in a minute. That you may have certainty... Concerning the things you've been taught. Now this book, this gospel, Luke, it was originally written in Greek. And that last word, certainty, can be translated reliability. So that you might have a confident sense of the reliability of the things you've been taught. It's actually the very last word of the entire paragraph in Greek. That word certainty, reliability. In Greek, it's the last word of the whole thing. Periods are used very rarely in the New Testament in its original language. This is one of the rare places where there is a period. Right after this word. And this is one sentence in its original writing. So, he... It doesn't take much reading between the lines to see that when this account of Jesus' teachings and his life and his death and his resurrection, when it was written, some people were finding the whole thing difficult to buy into. Some people who believed it were finding it hard to be confident in it, which is entirely possible, right? Um, You can believe something... But it be mixed up with doubt. Belief and doubt aren't mutually exclusive. So Luke is addressing this issue head on. That's 
a fundamental purpose of his gospel. It's to deal with the difficulty of having confidence that the claims of Christianity about Christ, about this world, that they're true, that they're reliable. Luke is saying, I want to give you a way to find confidence. Now, my hope and my prayer is that in the weeks and months ahead, between now through Easter into Pentecost, that as we read Luke's gospel together, that those of us who believe in Christ and those of us who half believe in Christ and those of us who sometimes do and sometimes don't believe in Christ and those of us who used to believe in Christ and those of us who really want to believe in Christ. My hope and my prayer is that, well, God will sh- that God will show us, that he'll give us a stronger, more confident sense of the reliability of Christianity. That God will help us find a solid basis for lasting faith. When I read these verses earlier, verse, Luke, verses 1 to 4, did you notice it was a, a little hard to follow the sense of the paragraphs? Um, did any of you get kind of lost and kind of check out for a minute? The reason you did is because it was written for that, that way on purpose. It was written as a complex sentence. A sentence that you hear and you kind of get lost and you scratch your head and you say, Oh wait, I must have missed something. Start over, say that again. You see, in Greek, this is one single, long, complex sentence. And it's like that for a particular reason. The author, we think his name is Luke. Luke's name shows up, um, is nowhere in the gospel. Our Bibles say at the top of them, the gospel according to Luke, tradition, the church within uh, about 150 years had assigned that as a title. That's the church's best guess, has been. So we'll call him Luke for the sake of ease, not having to say we think it's Luke every time. Luke is employing the style and the vocabulary and the structure of classical rhetoric. This, in fact, this is the only example of this type of writing in the Bible. This type of preface is found in ancient Greco-Roman scholarly um, tomes of history and medicine. Now, the reason that's important is that those who read this in its original Greek language, they would have had knowledge of the Greco-Roman literature of the period, and they would recognize that this author is writing sophisticated literature. Now, now follow the logic here. What I'm saying is, you can see some of this in English. You read the first four verses in English, and it takes a while to read it over and over and even maybe try to diagram it to figure out. It's one sentence with five clauses. Clauses that modify clauses that modify clauses. And it's not because he's a bad writer. He's actually the most sophisticated writer in the New Testament. It, it, it really... Now, now, to be honest, it doesn't rank up there with some of the best writing from the Greco-Roman world. It is the most sophisticated writing in the Bible. 
And what am I saying all of this for? I'm saying that those who read this or heard this read in its original context would have recognized that the author was seriously educated. That he came from the upper strata of society. This wasn't folksy. It it was like listening to an incredibly well-cultured, educated person deliver a lecture. It sent off all the signals. And, And the other thing is, he's writing it to an audience that he assumes would recognize that. So what does that say about the audience? They too are educated and cultured. Now, not all of the Bible is written from this author to this audience. Not all of the Bible has this context. He's writing to an audience that can appreciate this. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, I'm writing this to the most excellent Theophilus. Now, this might be a real person. Most excellent was a way you would refer to a Roman governor or a, a powerful political official. Maybe someone Luke has come to know. The name Theophilus. Can anybody guess what this would mean? Does anybody remember Greek or Latin roots? Lover of God or loved by God. Theo, right? God. Philo, Philadelphia, love. Right? Loved by God or most likely lover of God. So, and apparently this person who loves God has already been taught something about Jesus. Look at verse 4. That you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So here's a person who loves God. Who's been taught some things and yet lacks confidence. Well educated, cultured, has been told some of the story of the Bible, lacks confidence. Without a show of hands, how many people in this room can line up with that? Do you know that in our world you are well educated? You are cultured. Well, I'm looking at Chris with his beard and his tweed coat. You're, you, you, many of you in this room love God, but you doubt. You lack certainty. You, you've heard people claiming that ISIS is appealing to the Quran for its narrative of violence, who then immediately can turn to you and say, your Old Testament scriptures have genocide in there commanded by God. And you don't know how to answer the question. And you scratch your head. And you lack a confidence at various points in time. Now, it's also possible that Theophilus is not a person. That this is a literary device. For the God lovers out there. For those out there who can be represented by this figure that I'm pretending to write to. But I really intend to write this to a larger audience. We don't know. Theophilus was a very common term in in this society. Lots of Theophiluses. So in a sense, he kind of could have said to John Doe, right? I mean, to, to a person out there like this. So this is written by an educated and cultured man. And notice verse 3, seemed good to me. 
The word me in Greek is a masculine pronoun. It's written by a man to an audience who's been educated and is aware of the best of Greco-Roman culture. And when you read Luke's gospel, even if you don't know the Greek language and literature, you can get a sense that something sophisticated is going on just by reading in English. Think about this. It is hard to overestimate the artistry of stories Luke tells that nobody else tells. The prodigal son. Only Luke tells that story. This is a tremendous piece of artistry. He's actually a better literary author than he is at technical classical rhetoric. He's still up there. But when you start looking at his artistry, it is remarkable. The the way the whole gospel ends, the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and they're discouraged and they're downcast, it is a remarkable feat of literature. If you compare Luke's gospel, for example, to Mark's gospel, and stories that Luke tells that Mark also tells, we're fairly confident that Mark wrote his gospel first. You'll notice that when they tell the same stories, Luke tells them better. he's, He's just a better artist. He removes redundancies. He smooths out awkward phrases. He broadens the range of verbs to reduce monotony. And and, and stories that Mark tells, and they're just like your grandfather telling a story, and it's pretty good, but in the hands of a master storyteller, it's amazing. It's like that. I'm not saying Mark is bad. I'm just saying that when you read Luke's gospel, and even readers in first century Mediterranean world, they would know that they're beginning a well-researched piece of outstanding literature. Now, of course, we might think with our suspicious minds, of course he would claim that. Of course he would claim to be well-researched, to have talked to eyewitnesses, to have read all the other sources. That's what verse 1 does, right? Verse 1 says there's other written sources. Verse 2 says there's oral testimony of eyewitnesses, right? So in verse 1, he's, in verse 2, he's saying, look... I've looked at all of the data out there, the written data and the eyewitness testimony. Now, this is an ancient Greco-Roman way that of us doing a similar thing when we're trying to say something that's true, we kind of present our credentials. We can say, look, here's my sources. We do that with footnotes, right? Here's who I've looked at. Here's who I've talked to. I've, I've, I've investigated this. You know, this, in fact, Rolling Stone had an enormous black mark on its journalism, when it was found out that its account of some terrible things at UVA weren't researched well. So here is Luke showing his hands in a way that to the Mediterranean world 2,000 years ago, they would have all agreed, okay, this is sophisticated, this is well-researched, we can follow this. This is not a fly-by-night or casual account. Now, There's a few other things that I want to point out up front. It seems to me that Luke was driven to write this account by three factors. Three things motivated Luke beyond what I've already talked about. One of them is geographic. 
One of them is historic and one of them is sociological. A geographical motivation for Luke. There's a lot of internal evidence. It it seems to us that Luke's gospel was written somewhere between the 60s and as late as 90 AD. So think Jesus crucified in the early 30s. So 30 to 60 years after it, it seems to me, it seems to a number of scholars who act, their opinion actually should carry a lot more weight than mine on this. It looks like it was written in the late 60s. Now this is important. Because by the late 60s, by 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus' life, his message, his teachings had spread. Alright, 30 years of his followers telling other people. About what's going on. And they had spread far beyond the original communities where Jesus actually did his teaching. Where Jesus actually performed miracles. Peter, Paul, other missionaries, they had carried the message in all directions. And so by this time, by 30 years later, there were rumors. There were garbled, muddled, misleading accounts that were circulating. So Luke knows about other writings out there that have begun the task of putting what actually happened down on paper. This is what's driving Luke. He's recognizing that as the decades go by, right, as the stories spread, we need to establish a trustworthy account of them. Secondly, there's a historical motivation. The eyewitnesses are dying. 30 years after the fact, right? The eyewitness testimony is is being lost. The further you get from the events, the older and the fewer the eyewitnesses get. The third issue, it's more sociological. It's this. If indeed Luke is writing in the late 60s and early 70s, does anybody know what was going on in that area of the world in the late 60s and the early 70s? Rome was obliterating Israel. I mean, just raising it to the ground. There was a horrendous war raging in Palestine. The Jews had rebelled against the occupying force, the Romans, and, and until finally in the year 66 AD, after a long, Rome began a long siege of Jerusalem. And by the year 70... Jerusalem was utterly reduced to rubble. It was destroyed. Now, the result of the Roman army marching through Palestine and just destroying it, the result of this was that many of the towns and the villages where Jesus had walked and taught, the people who had had him to their house for a meal, who could give eyewitness testimony, many of these communities and many of these towns and villages were decimated. So not only was the older generation dying out, but the communities that had witnessed Jesus' activities, his, his, his life, they were being dispersed and they were being destroyed. So the stories about Jesus in this oral culture, they depended on a peaceful, stable environment in order to carry on. So these are the three reasons I think Luke is putting this down on paper. 
because you're getting further and further from the eyewitnesses. It's moving farther and farther geographically away and war is ravaging and destroying the community that carries the memory. So here's this educated, cultured man who's writing to an educated and cultured audience that's saying, now how can we know this is true? How can we be sure? And he's doing what? He's not only presenting the facts, he's trying to convince them that they can trust this reading of the facts. He's trying to show them it is possible to believe without checking your brain at the door. Now, how does he do it? How, what is his strategy for giving a cultured skeptic, a cultured believer who struggles with doubt, what is his strategy for strengthening his faith? How does he go about helping Theophilus and all of the Theophiluses today have confidence? Well, the answer is in verse 3. Look at verse 3. It seemed good to me also. Right? So what did he do? Verse 1, he said, other people have written some things. Verse 2, he said, eyewitnesses have been giving their testimony. And me, I've decided to jump in the fray too. And tell the story of Jesus. In addition to the other writers, in addition to the eyewitnesses, it seems good that, to me also to tell the story. All right? Having followed all things closely for some time past. Now, look, our best guess is that, like I said, this is Luke. The reason we think it's Luke, a number of issues, but a key issue is that this book has a second book. The book of Acts. And in there the narrator periodically uses the first person plural pronoun we. When he's talking about Paul. And he talks about Paul is on a journey. The apostle Paul. And then suddenly he says and we arrived at the city of whatever city. This combined with another a few other kind of pieces of evidence leads us to believe that this is the physician Luke who is the traveling companion of Paul. And what he's saying is, I've been closely investigating. How was he investigating? Well, he's going to these communities. He's traveling around with Paul. He had spent some time in Jerusalem before the fall of Jerusalem with some of the other apostles, some of the other eyewitnesses. I followed this stuff closely. This is, look, this is just like a journalist saying, look, I was there, I talked to this person, I interviewed that person. It seemed good to me, after I've done my good, careful research, to write, here's the key answer to my question earlier. Remember the question, how does he help Theophilus have confidence? What's his strategy? It seemed good to me to write, here's the key, an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty. What is going to give Theophilus certainty? An orderly account. The word orderly, we skip past it quick in English. It's critical that you recognize all of the weight of this book's persuasion is on that adjective. 
In other words, there are various ways. I could, right? When Paul was writing letters to people trying to convince them of the faith, he wrote letters. Right? A letter that tells you what to do is different than this. How does Luke go about trying to strengthen Theophilus' confidence? By writing a story. Now think about this. Parents with children. Sometimes when you're trying to help children, you tell them what to do. Sometimes you tell them a story. These are different ways of addressing a problem. And Luke says, I'm going to help you gain confidence by an orderly account. Now, Luke is concerned with confidence, with reliability. And he says the key to confidence is this orderly account. Now what I'm about to say, it is almost impossible to overstate what I'm about to claim. A primary ingredient that will lead Theophilus and others who love God, a primary ingredient in us having a deep confidence, a clear sense of the reliability of the gospel, is the order of the story. The order in which it's told. Luke has ordered all of this data. Right? He investigated, he talked to eyewitnesses, he read source material, he got all of the data, and then he put it in a particular order. And that order is the foundation on which Theophilus can grow confident. The order is critical for a confident understanding in Christianity, in who Jesus is. Then, like now, there were enormous debates about how to interpret Jesus, how to understand him. Today, Jesus is up for grabs. The fundamentalists say he means one thing. The liberals say he means another thing. The universities say he means another thing. The churches say he means something. Who is Jesus? How do we account for him? How do we interpret him? How do we rightly state his message and his identity? Well, that debate's been going on since the beginning. And Luke's claim is that to understand Jesus right, you have to read the events in order. I know this might sound like a small point, but it's not. It's at the center of Christianity. The point I'm making is what divides Orthodox Christianity from heresy. It's what divides faithful churches from apostate churches. The point I'm making is the linchpin. How do we know that what we're saying about God is approved by God? How do we know that our interpretation of God is right? Luke says it depends on the order. Now look, this, this is, I know it's a big deal, but you, you know this. You know that I could take an episode from last night at your house. And if I don't know the context, I can make it mean many things. That's what Luke is saying. Luke is saying the only right way to read the Bible is to read it in the right context. 
Let me come at this from another angle. Many of the best loved and most widely known stories of Jesus come only from Luke's gospel. The parable of the prodigal son. Only in Luke's gospel. The good Samaritan. Only in Luke's gospel. The Emmaus Road. The Jesus' prayer from the cross. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. These are just of the few of the stories and sayings that only exist in Luke's gospel. And in our world, they exist apart from Luke's gospel. How many of us have ever heard the parable of the prodigal son or Jesus is saying, Father, forgive them, used as a billy club to beat you up into a certain ethic, a certain way, a certain morality? You see, we too are accustomed to reading Luke's gospel not left to right. That's how you read stories, left to right. We're accustomed to dipping into it, picking out a story, and launching it into some conversation we're having. And Luke says, at the very beginning, he says, the key is the order. The key is the order. You can make the parable of the prodigal son mean many, many things. You can make it mean many things that are true. You can also make it mean things that are not true. And it's the context. It's the order. We know these stories. But many of us know these famous stories of Jesus' life as disembodied, decontextualized little episodes that we use to make Jesus into the image of our culture's favorite ethic and value. But right here at the beginning, Jesus, Luke tells us, do not mine my gospel for nuggets of inspiration and truth. Read it straight through so that you can be sure you're getting the right truth from these stories. Luke is telling us here, this is a single coherent story. It is not just a collection of pious vignettes. So what I'm saying is we need to read Luke's gospel left to right. From start to finish. As a story. As a whole. Now, let me stop here. So this is what I'm going to ask you to do as a church. Over the next six months to do this. In the season of Epiphany, which is after Christmas before Lent... If you're new to the church calendar, it's like um, in January. Okay. I'm going to ask everybody in the church, there's going to be about a five or six week period, that during that period you pick out one day where you sit down and you read Luke's gospel in one undisturbed sitting. Now that's going to take about three and a half hours. But many of you in this room have read a book for three and a half hours before. So just suck it up. Now some of you have never read a book for three and a half hours. Okay. On Tuesday read for an hour and a half. And on Wednesday read for an hour and three quarters. Alright. Whether it's one sitting or two sitting. Let's do this. Let's, let's try to, to, to grow more. A, a better understanding of the whole. Look. If, if, if you want to get from here to Washington D.C. You can go on all the back roads and take your time and hang out with some of the various people that live along the way and spend the night and 
try, you know, do the Blue Ridge Parkway for part of the time. You could also pick an hour of the day when there's no traffic in Northern Virginia, if you can find such a thing. And you could launch yourself up 81. And um, you could go fast and just do it in one whack. And what you do when you do that is you get an overview of the land between here and there. You don't get the, new t- the nuanced, detailed knowledge that you would have if you lived a year in each community between here and there, right? There are times we need to sit with parts of the Bible and just get on the interstate and fly right through it and not get bogged down in all the details. Make sure we've got the whole. That's what I'm going to ask you to do. A second thing I'm going to ask us as a church to do is this. In the season of Lent, which are the weeks leading up to Easter, I'm going to ask us as a whole, all of us in the church, to do our devotions through the Gospel of Luke. And just like today, we gave you a devotional guide for Advent. We're going to give you a devotional guide that you'll take paragraph by paragraph and have a devotion every day, and you'll just work your way through the whole book, starting in verse 1 and getting to the end, and you get to the resurrection on Easter and all that kind of good stuff. In other words, I'm going to ask us to take Luke at his word and read his book the way he asked us to read it. Why? So that we can grow more confident. So that we can discover that it is possible to have a confidence in the claims of Christianity without checking your brain at the door. Those of you who struggle with doubt, this is a critical way to face your doubts. It's to read the Bible the way it asks to be read. This is different than investigating in some evidentiary way. But this is a critical way. Who among us doesn't want to grow more confident? Who among us doesn't want to have a greater sense of the reliability of Christianity? But there's more. One more thing. It's not only about reading Luke's gospel as a single story. That's what Luke says to Theophilus is the key to him getting confidence. Theophilus, these are ordered events. Read them in this order. But there's something else he says to Theophilus that is necessary for Theophilus to correctly understand who Jesus is. It's in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the events that have been fulfilled... Among us. Now, some of your Bibles translate that word fulfilled, accomplished. Write it out, scratch, write a line through it, and write too weak beside it. It's too weak. It, it is what the word means, but it, it's, it's, it's not carrying the weight of, of what the original hearers would have heard. It's not just that events were done, it's that events accomplished something. A better way to say that for our ears, events fulfilled something. And what does that presume? When I use the word fulfilled, what is it presupposing? A backstory. A backstory. The events didn't simply happen, they happened in fulfillment 
By the way, it's not a prophecy. He's not talking here about prophecy. They happened in fulfillment of a story that's been going on. Right? So you, you watch, I don't know, some great Jane Austen movie or you read her book, right? And finally, Mr. Darcy, right? Ask, what was her name? Susie? What was her name? Elizabeth, thank you. None of the guys answered. Scott Hansen would have answered if he was here. Finally, Mr. Darcy, ask Elizabeth, uh, commits himself to her. What that means only works after you've read all the book up until there. So here, here's what I'm saying. Jesus' life will mean anything your culture wants it to mean. Unless you read Jesus' life as a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Do you know that before... The, the Nazis made their critical move of genocide against the Jews. The theologians in Germany discounted the Old Testament. How else did a Lutheran Christian nation suddenly commit such an atrocious act? I'm telling you, It's all over the scholarly literature. The biblical scholars, the theologians, said the Old Testament is bifurcated from the New. And you can have a Christianity that carries a New Testament only. If you do not read Jesus' life as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, you, like the Nazis, will use Jesus to support Your culture's agenda. That's what the word fulfilled means. Luke is confident that these events are incomplete, malleable, unless you understand them as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's confident that that Jesus' life is part of a single story that had begun several thousand years before. And And he's confident that the way Theophilus can come to know Christianity with a deep sense of confidence is if he will understand Jesus in that context. For Luke, the Old Testament is foundational. In chapter 16, when the rich man asked Abraham to send Lazarus to the earth to warn his brothers, Abraham says, they've got the Old Testament. And if they don't hear from Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced by Jesus. You can't can't get this apart from the Old Testament. In the last chapter of Luke's gospel, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they knew Jesus, they knew about Jesus, they had, they, they, they had seen the crucifixion, they even had heard about the resurrection, but they still are confused, depressed, and muddled. Jesus shows up, they still don't get it. When the resurrected Jesus is with them. So it says that Jesus went back to the Old Testament and showed them how it pointed to him. And then their eyes were opened. This is all over Luke's gospel. You can't get Jesus rightly apart from the Old Testament. 
It's, and the Old Testament saturates Luke's gospel. Most of the songs in chapters 1 and 2, you know, Mary sings a song and, and Elizabeth sings a song. Line after line, phrase after phrase, it's straight out of the Old Testament. Mary and Joseph see to it that the law of Moses is carefully observed in the way they raise Jesus. In in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus starts his public ministry, he quotes the Old Testament and says, that thing the Old Testament was talking about, that's what I'm about to do. Elijah and Elisha are are the precedents for Jesus. And then there's all the allusions. Luke often tells a story about Jesus Using the words and, the, and the, the framework of the Old Testament. Mary's song in Luke chapter 2. If you've been reading 1 Samuel, it's the same. There was another woman who cried out, who was, didn't have a child. And a miraculous pregnancy occurred. And when, when, her, when that happens, she sings a song. Then that boy grows up in the temple. And so later when you see Jesus in the temple, if you've been reading 1 Samuel, it's a verbatim retelling of the story of Samuel in the temple about my father's business, hearing the voice of the father. This stuff goes on and on. When Jesus raises a widow's son, it is almost identical to Elijah raising a widow's son. What am I saying here? I'm saying this. If you want to know Jesus better, You not only need to read the Gospels left to right, you need to read the Bible left to right. So just like I said, let's take this serious by reading Luke in these multiple ways. You know, we're going to read Luke between now and Pentecost. We're going to read him on Sundays. We're going to read him in our small groups. I'm going to ask you to read Luke in your devotions. I'm going to ask you to read it in one big sitting. I'm going to ask you to read it in lots of little sittings. We need to do the same with the Old Testament. And this is what I mean. We passed out to you guys. This Advent devotional. Look at this. Let, let me explain it to you. So, um, look, turn to the inside. This starts next Sunday. You see it says AM, Psalm 146, Amos, First Thessalonians. PM, all these other Psalms in the Gospel of Luke. Here's the deal. Ignore all of that. Do you see the red print? Genesis 1. Then the next one, Genesis 2. Then the next one, Genesis 6. Then Genesis 11. Then Genesis 12. Genesis 22, 28, 37. Exodus, 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 Exodus. Joshua, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Habakkuk, Malachi. If you know enough of the Bible, that's that's the order. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. At least read the red stuff. Here's a way I encourage you to do it. The way we do it with our family. We get this little ugly, gnarly looking Charlie Brown Christmas tree. It's about this tall. Every night during Advent, we put it on a little stool. We light a candle. We sing, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus, the light of the world. And we read this story out of the Jesus Storybook Bible, out of a children's Bible. Then we've made ornaments, those things in red, globe and bird, fruit and snake. We've made them out of bakeable clay. Lots of fun. Then we read the story. Everybody plays with the ornament. Then whoever's day it is puts it on the tree. And that's all we do. We're not trying to teach what the stories mean. 
We're just trying to learn the stories so they're in our bones. So that you, when you're reading Mary's song, so that you can say, that sounds like Hannah's song. Because if you can't do that, your culture's values will overwhelm your interpretation of Jesus. And you won't even know it. That's, the, that's what's at stake. We've got to recover the Old Testament. Not as prophecy fulfillment, but as the story context. Now, some of you are like, you're already used to reading your Bible every day. So you can read a little more than that. Read a psalm. One of the psalms in the morning, one in the evening. Look, you can do any aspect of this you want. You just want to pick the psalms. You want to pick the Old Testament passage. You want to pick an epistle. But I encourage everybody to at least do the red. So the way I do this is because I'm paid to be holy. Because that's... Because I actually have a a monkish life. I have lots of quiet time. And I can do this on the job. Many of you should not do this on the job. I I do all of it. In the morning, I break it into morning, afternoon, end of day, family, then end of the night. But you don't have to do it that way. Don't try to do more than your your schedule will allow. But at least do the red stuff. And parents... Do this with your kids. Now why? Uh, Why are we doing all of this? So that we may have certainty concerning the things we've been taught. Let's pray.